I'd like to take a Bible, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We want to look at a passage, Hebrews chapter 4. This, uh, the, the two verses I'd like us to focus on are found on page 1003 in one of the Bibles you would pick up on a chair around you, Hebrews chapter 4. We're only going to look this morning at verses 12 and 13, but I, I want to begin reading in verse 1 to set the context Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Our Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you that you give us freedom to be here this morning. And we pray that your word would speak to us with fresh power the power that you say that it has, and we pray that it might even penetrate our hearts in such a way that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we might come with hearts that are captured by your grace and desirous in deeper ways of living in submission to you. And so we entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, might surprise you to know, is still the most widely sold book in the world, but the place that it once had has obviously been lost in society. You may have known that uh, around 2003, Canada passed uh, certain laws regarding hate speech. And unfortunately, one of the things they covered was the Bible. And this caused an uproar for about 10 years until uh, earlier this year it was withdrawn. But it, it contained the idea that because the Bible speaks harshly, strongly about certain kinds of behavior that that constituted hate speech. You might think, well, 
you know, we kind of expect that from our neighbors to the north sometimes to go, go off a little bit wild at times up there, but uh, that's not only the case. The same thing has been attempted in California in uh, recent time, and it's often spoken about on the television. Now, that raises a whole question that we should think about. How do we use the Bible? Should we trust the Bible? After all, Christianity is a, uh, a faith that says this book gives us everything we need to know about God. This is nothing less than God's word written. That is, he speaks to us through it. Now, if we want to think about trusting the Bible, there's a way in which that's usually done in sort of academic settings, and that is to talk about the different reasons why people should trust the Bible. One of those, for example, is its reliability. Historically, the Bible is a very reliable document. It's reliable in two ways. One is it's backed up in many ways by historical documents. That is, when documents refer in history from the Roman Empire, say, to certain events going on in the world, it lines up with what the Bible is reporting went on in the world at that time. So it's found to be historically accurate in that way. It's also historically accurate in terms of archaeology. People who have studied archaeology often demonstrate that there are many aspects of the Bible that are reliable. Now, there, there are things that still aren't known. But, for example, one thing that happened earlier in the century was skeptics would make fun of the Bible because it speaks of a certain people group called the Amalekites. And there was no historical evidence from either writing or from archaeology that such a people group ever existed. And so it was thought the Bible just made up that, that whole aspect of, of things. But then, lo and behold, in the 1930s, archaeological research brought up both writings, like on shards of pottery, things that were written, as well as the historical evidence of a rather vast civilization that had never been known before in a certain part of the ancient Near East. That has often happened. The Bible is very historically accurate. We could talk about not only its accuracy or reliability, but we could talk about its, um, its uh, excuse me, my mind is wandering, its uh, preservation, the fact that it has been preserved through the centuries. Uh, one thing that was always thought was that Old Testament uh, writings, one of the practices of the Jewish people was to when they copied a manuscript to destroy the previous edition. So they always had a fresh copy that had been made very carefully based on the old one. Now, when I say very carefully, the practices of the scribes was such that when they had finished writing a page, they would lay the page of the old document over it and put a pin through it and make sure that it stuck through exactly the same letter in the other edition. So, I mean, preservation was something that was thought about, but we didn't have any documents because of what I just described from before the time of Christ. There were no parchments or um, uh, papyri, which are like paper scrolls. There was nothing from before the time of Christ because they were systematically destroyed. But then in 1947, the Qumran documents were found in Israel. And uh, that was a certain cave where a shepherd boy threw a rock and heard it break something, went into this cave, and there were all these pottery jars full of papyrus, and they were from about 200 years, or they dated at least up to 200 years before the time of Christ. And what's amazing is the accuracy with which those documents compare 
to the earliest manuscripts we had before that, which was from the 10th century AD. They were exactly the same. We could talk more about that, but the preservation of scripture is something different from any other historical document you can think of. The great, absolutely phenomenal literature from the ancient Greek world, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were probably started around 1100 BC, written down sometime in 800 BC, uh, passed orally for many centuries. Do you know that we have one handwritten manuscript that represents the Iliad from the 10th century AD? Everything that we know about the Iliad rests on that one manuscript. We have 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in various forms, some just fragments all the way up to complete editions of the New Testament, handwritten before the, the uh, invention of the printing press. I mean, the preservation of Scripture is something different from all other kinds of writings. And then, uh, obviously, there's a third one, and that is the accuracy of the Bible in terms of fulfilled prophecy. And we could talk about all of those things. We could go in great depth and think about them. The thing is, none of those prove that the Bible is a book upon which you ought to base your life. As a Christian, they help us to gather that that is true. They give us like a, a sense that this isn't just, as some people think, some writings that someone threw out there that are long after the event, that people copied a few times. We know that that's not the case. So we have a sense of, of confidence, but rarely is anyone convinced by those things that they ought to do something with the Bible. Rather, the Bible uses a different approach to tell us why we should trust it. And it's really found in these two verses. And he says in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice he says, first, the word of God is living and active. And, and what that means is that it is not just an inanimate object. It's not simply dry ink on a page. But because it is the utterance of God himself, it carries with it power. So we might say the word of God is, first of all, powerful, but it's also purposeful. For example, there's a, a passage in Isaiah that that is often related to this one that I just read, found in Isaiah 55. And here's what God said through Isaiah eight centuries before the time of Christ. Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God says that his word, which we have recorded in the Bible, his word fulfills the purpose for which he said it, that none of the things that he said will fail to come to pass, will not be fulfilled in exactly the way that he intended it to be fulfilled. Now, that's different from us. You know, we have the best intentions as parents, right? And you say to your child, now, don't take Susie's toy again, or you're going to have a time out. 
and he takes Susie's toy and pokes her in the eye and she cries and you say, now, Billy, don't take Susie's toy again or I'm going to give you a time out. You know, and then you turn back and you say, and he does it again. You know how it is. And then sometimes it kind of builds up until you say, Billy! <laughs> God's not like that. What God says comes to pass. His words are purposeful, and that's what's meant behind this. The word of God is living and active. It's like an animate thing that has power, has will, has choice, because it's the word of God. It's powerful and it's purposeful. And then he says, using an inanimate object as his metaphor, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now, that says that it's penetrating. And the idea is, by using these different uh, images, it penetrates right to the heart of something. It reaches straight in. And it gets to the point that it wants to get to. How often in life we find that difficult. How many times have you talked to a person and you realize that you need, they need to understand something, you want to help them understand it, but no matter what you say, you're not able to penetrate in there. That's human power, but this says God's word unlike that, is sharp, incisive, penetrating. It gets to the very heart of the matter. That's unlike any other literature. So it says, first of all, the Bible is powerful and purposeful, and it's penetrating. And then he says, and discerning or judging, the word means the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That goes along with penetrating, but in this case what it does is it exposes reality so that the heart experiences what you would call conviction, this sense that God's word has spoken to me and it penetrates somewhere deep inside that reveals me as I truly am, as God sees me, not as I want to see myself or as I try to be sure that other people see me as I move through life, things like that. You see, what we need to do with the Bible is to use it Because when we use the Bible, when we speak the Bible's words, its power is unleashed in people's lives. So many times I've met people, you know, for years I worked with college students, and and one of the things I found was that college students, 40 years ago even, when I worked with college students, college students, uh, they, they wanted to argue about the reliability of the Bible. And that's not a terrible thing to do. It's good to help them know a few things about that what I said earlier, it's reliability and accuracy and preservation and things like that. The things that is so often they had no knowledge of what it was they were arguing about. They didn't even know what the Bible said. And so I found it much more helpful generally after a few minutes of talking about the reliability of the Bible to say, would you mind if I show you what the Bible says about this matter that we're talking about, and then use the scriptures. And, and I would find them interacting as though it were true because they saw me using as though it were true. It didn't mean they believed it was true, but they would interact on that level, and oftentimes God would begin to speak to them and work inside of their heart over a period of time. I mean, how many people you've talked to who say, well, I think I'll go to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. If you say to them, can you list the Ten Commandments? I've never had a person be able to do it. The fact is, are you going to, to rest your eternal destiny on a series of commands that you don't even know what they are, and yet you're assuming that you're doing them all? 
one of the things people need is just to understand some things that the Bible says. You know, there are people who did that in the past. I brought some books uh, that demonstrate this. These are three from three different centuries, three people who uh, were skeptics of Christianity, and they were challenged in some way to study the reliability of the Bible. The first one was a person named Sir William Ramsey. And Sir William Ramsey was uh, not a sir when he was young. He was a, um, an archaeologist who believed that the Bible was not true. And so he was challenged by another archaeologist in Great Britain to, in doing his research, to look at the Bible and what it said about certain matters. And he wrote a book called Luke the Historian in the Light of Historical Research later in his life. Because what he did is he read the Gospel of Luke, which is the book uh, that has the most historical basis in the New Testament, is he began to see that Luke was an incredibly careful historian. Rather than just putting together a series of things that he hadn't researched, he was using things from eyewitnesses that he said you could go and talk to, or if there weren't eyewitnesses, he was recording the basis for where it came from and things like that. And Sir William Ramsey became a Christian, was later knighted by the queen in the late 1800s because of his uh, contributions to the church. There was a man in the, in the 20th century, about 100 years ago, in 1930, he wrote this book, Who Moved the Stone? His name was Frank Morrison. Frank Morrison uh, was also from Great Britain. He was an, well, we would call him today an advertising executive, but it was at the beginning of advertising. They didn't even know what to call it. And uh, he was challenged by someone to think about the resurrection of Christ in light of what the Bible says about the resurrection of Christ because he had been ridiculing the idea that Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. So using the Gospels, as he began to read the Gospels, he realized that what was contained in the Gospels was vastly different than what he thought or what he'd been taught in college or things like that. When he actually read it for himself, he found that there were all these incredible details about the resurrection of Christ that when you put them together, it led you to this conclusion, only God could have moved the stone. There was no other answer as to the stone, the two-ton rock that was put in the front of the uh, tomb of Christ as to how it was moved out of the way. I mean, it was a skeptic who became a Christian. And this happened just a few years ago. You've heard of this person, perhaps. Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ. He was a Harvard-educated uh, uh, law uh, journalist. And he was employed by the Chicago Tribune writing uh, about legal matters. And his wife went to a church and became a Christian. And as he went to that church, he began to think about the things they were saying because he was a skeptic. He was an agnostic, he said, about Christianity. And he eventually wrote this book, and he's still writing books, but this book called The Case for Christ, which goes through the New Testament evidence as it's compared to historical evidence and as scholars talk about it today. What I'm saying is that the Bible is incredibly powerful. It says it's living and active, and rather than defending its accuracy, the best thing we as Christians can do is to unleash its power by using it. You might have heard two or three weeks ago there was a, a little boy in China, nine years old. He was visiting a zoo, and he liked the bear. Did you hear this story? He really liked the bear. He was so cute and cuddly, and perhaps he had a bear at home. So he threw some food in, and the bear ate it. And then he decided he wanted to touch the bear. So he held the food in, and the bear took the food out of his hand and then bit his arm off. And, and there's a picture of him. They kind of 
so you didn't see it, you know, how they sort of made it fuzzy right there. But I mean, it's just a bloody stump. Bit, bit the kid's arm off. It's a really gross story. I'm sorry, children, to tell that story. <laughs> but here's the fact. Here, here's what people do with the Bible. They put it in a cage. And then they throw things at it, and they make fun of it, and they say it's toothless, you know? It doesn't really have any power. Look, it's, it, it's, it's just there. Think of Bill Nair and the things he says about the Bible. They don't take it out of its cage, because if they did, it would eat them up. In fact, do you know the passage that we're looking at when it says, um, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The idea of the two edges, probably, this comes from the Old Testament, means salvation and judgment. That the Bible works in two ways, just like Jesus said. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's a wonderful promise based on the word of God. He also says in John chapter 12, the one who refuses my word will be judged by my word on the last day. That is, the word of God is something that is living and active and it's powerful in that it carries a message that either brings a person closer to God or drives them farther away from God. It either brings them ultimately into the presence of God or will leave them without God's presence for eternity. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And what I'm saying is that Rather than letting people treat the Bible like a caged bear, we need to open the doors of the cage. We need to let the Bible out. Now, my illustration breaks down in that if you let a bear out, a bear is a wild animal. It's going to do what seems right to it, which is to kill and maim and maul. The Bible is a wild animal on one level, but it's purposeful and powerful. That is, it brings this message of salvation and judgment. So when you let it out, its goodness acts in such a way as to restrain it from just unhindered maiming of everything around it. But its image is still true. Rather than caging up this uh, living thing that God has given to us, rather than trying to talk about it objectively and its historical accuracy and all of those things which are true, the best thing we can do is to let it out of its cage. Now, that's true in our own lives, isn't it? That means that those of us who have trusted in Christ and we have tasted the saving part of what that message is about, that we also let it out in our own lives so that we might experience more fully its penetration, its incisive action to speak to our hearts. And that requires that we read it and we think about it. But you know, the Bible is, is a book that, uh, like someone once said, uh, a child can wade in its shoreline and a, a grown man can drown in its depths. The, the Bible is full and rich. You could spend the rest of your life reflecting on it, thinking about it, and asking God to speak to you through it, and it would speak with fresh power to each person in many different ways. Now, it's appropriate when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper for us to think on this subject because it is the Word of God, that is, God's own revelation to us, that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. And by the power of the Scriptures, the Word, it's also revealed to us, we're told, in a visible form, which also carries the Word. That is, Jesus held up the bread at the Last Supper in the cup, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup 
of the new covenant in my blood. And he was giving a new significance to those elements of the Passover that they now represent to us in vivid and powerful ways the fact that Jesus died for our sins. That's which we only know objectively through the scriptures. But God said he would speak to us in this way as well. His word, the same word, would come to us as the word of God, which records that truth, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, becomes connected with a physical element and we take it in our hands and we eat it and drink it. So let's spend a few minutes preparing our hearts before we do that together.